friends, and welcome to St. Matthew's this morning. It's great to see you. One of the great treasures that we have as God's people is his written word that we find in the Bible. So let's stand as we begin and sing, God has spoken by his prophets. Christianity series uh, here at St. Matthew's. Today, our senior minister, Bruce Clark, will be addressing the question, should we take the Bible literally? For so many people, they're very dismissive of the Bible. It's something that we love, love here at St. Matthew's, but, but what do we do with those awkward bits? And there are bits that we find hard to understand. Are, are we meant to take them literally? Uh, Bruce will be addressing that uh, later in the service. And one of the things that we're going to do, because really our theme today is around the Bible and God's Word, is there's going to be an opportunity after Bruce speaks for you to share with us a favourite verse of the Bible. Is there one that stands out for you? Or there might be a whole lot, but is there one that you'd like to share with us this morning? And maybe even just say a little bit about why you really, really appreciate that part of God's Word. There are lots of things to look forward to this morning, not least that we come together as God's people to encourage each other. We come together before God, who's always with us, but we have the opportunity together to lift our hearts in prayer to him. Now, he's there, he cares, he listens. So a feature of the early part of our service is that we're engaging with him together in prayer. Firstly, we'll pray a prayer of preparation, uh, then we'll pray a prayer of confession. And then after we've read a psalm together, I'll lead us in prayers about some further matters. But I'll, um, I'll lead us in this prayer. Have we got that prayer of preparation? We'll let that come up on the screen. Please, please pray with me as we, as we recite these words. Almighty God, to whom all hearts are open, all desires known, 
and from whom no secrets are hidden, cleanse the thoughts of our hearts by the inspiration of your Holy Spirit, that we may perfectly love you and worthily magnify your holy name. Through Christ our Lord. Amen. And please join me as well in this prayer of confession. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we have gone our own way, not loving you as we ought, nor loving our neighbour as ourselves. We have sinned against you in thought, word and deed, and in what we have failed to do. We deserve your condemnation. Father, forgive us. Help us to love you and our neighbour and to live for your honour and glory. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. And as we come before God in prayer like that, we can be confident in Christ that we are completely forgiven because of all that Christ has done for us. Now as we uh, consider how we respond to the Bible, uh, we're going to recite Psalm 19, written so many years ago, which is really a celebration of the wonder that God speaks to us. And it's a prayer that God will help us listen very carefully to what he has said. We're just re going to recite some parts of Psalm 19, but I invite you to join me as we read this together. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day they pour forth speech. Night after night they reveal knowledge. The law of the Lord is perfect, refreshing the soul. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. They are more precious than gold, than much pure gold. They are sweeter than honey, than honey from the honeycomb. By them your servant is warned, in keeping them there is great reward. But who can discern their own errors? Forgive my hidden faults, keep your servant also from willful sins, may they not rule over me. Then I will be blameless, innocent of great transgression. May these words of my mouth and this meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight, Lord my rock and my Redeemer. As I lead us in further prayers, I'm going to read a prayer that comes from the Book of Common Prayer, written by Thomas Cranmer 500 years or so ago. But a prayer that beautifully expresses our wonder that God has spoken and our desire to listen and obey Him. Blessed Lord, who caused all Holy Scriptures to be written for our learning, Grant us so to hear them, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them, that we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life, which you have given us in our Saviour Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. Father, we praise you as the one who rules over all and we pray to you for those who are in positions of authority in our country and in our community, especially for our Prime Minister, Anthony Albanese, our Premier, Dominic Perrottet, our local members of Parliament, Zali Stegall and James Griffin, and our Mayor, Michael Regan. Lord, give them understanding integrity and courage to make decisions that are just and wise. And may they have a comprehensive vision of how best to meet the needs of diverse communities and how best to protect and utilise the resources our country is so blessed with. More locally, we pray for some of the outreach ministries of St Matthews, for the soup kitchen team, for energy and encouragement in the work that they do, in creating a safe and welcome environment for those who are in need. We pray that those who come to Soup Kitchen will feel cared for and will see your love through those who serve. We pray that many would continue to be uplifted and encouraged at the Soulmates Bible Study, which meets after Soup Kitchen each Monday evening. We also pray for the team members who help out 
teaching English as a second language at St Matthews. We'd love for the students to not only learn to be confident and competent in English, but to grow in their knowledge of God and the grace offered through the death of his son, Jesus Christ. Lord God, your glory is all around us. Let us praise you for your goodness and mercy all the days of our life. Father, strengthen us to endure through times of trouble in faithfulness, knowing we can lean on you as our God of comfort and knowing that in your grace you have plans for our good. Amen. We're now going to catch up with some news from St Matt's uh, by watching the screen. G'day church, good to be together again. Just three things from me. Something for this week, something for next week, and something for every week. First for this week. If you're at our 10, our 5, or our night church services, then straight after today's service, the scoop is on. 15 minutes or so up in the Daly Smith Cafe, and I'm inviting anyone who's new, who's visiting, or who's maybe just checking us out as a church. So if that's you, we would love you to get along, enjoy some Anita Gelato, and say good day. That's this week. Now for every week. I'm, of course, talking about the online connection card. There should be one under every seat. It's super simple. Scan the code, let us know you are here, how we can help, and we'll be in touch. It's especially helpful for anyone that's new or visiting or checking us out. We would love to connect with you. Finally, something about next week. As part of this new series, Confronting Christianity, next Sunday, and then in a special midweek session following, we're taking some time to discuss the topic of homosexuality and transgenderism. Next Sunday, I'll be answering the question, is God homophobic? And then on Tuesday and Wednesday evening and Thursday morning, Bruce, our senior minister, is going to be running a seminar to think about what the Bible has to say about being transgender. It's definitely worth saying, in, in choosing to engage with these topics, we're really not trying to be provocative. It's, it's not because we think sex and gender are the most important issues. They're not. It's because right now in our culture, these are the issues confronting the Christian faith. One study from the US revealed that 91% of the general public considered Christianity to be anti-homosexual. Are we? Because that's the perception. The question is, how should we respond to that? Like it's, it's tricky, trust me. I, I've got to write the sermon. And it's also confronting, which is why it's worth thinking about carefully and, and thoughtfully. What if we were willing to respond to this perception with the same kind of love, the same kind of compassion, the same kind of grace we see lived out in Jesus' life? What difference could that make? Come along next week and find out. Thanks so much to those. We're going to sing in a moment, but I'd, I'd just like to pass on a, a thank you to those of you who pray for our services and pray for our preachers in particular. And uh, when you hear Nathan letting us know about what he'll be preaching on next week, do be praying for him. Uh, we really do want to be living in the way that the Lord Jesus would if he were amongst us, uh, showing his love to people around us at times uh, when perceptions of Christianity uh, don't match the reality of the wonder of the gospel of the Lord Jesus. We're going to stand and sing now, and this will be our offertory hymn. Storms of 
Good morning, brothers and sisters in Christ. Our Bible reading this morning is taken from 2 Peter chapter 3, and I'll be reading verses 8 to 18. This passage may be found on page 1227 of our church Bibles. Page 1227. But do not forget the one, this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire. And the earth and everything in it will be laid bare. Since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? You ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed is coming. That day will bring about the destruction of the heavens by fire and the elements will melt in the heat. But in keeping with his promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness dwells. So then, dear friends, since you are looking forward uh, to this, make every effort to find yourselves spotless, blameless and at peace with him. Bear in mind that our Lord's patience means salvation, just as our dear brother Paul also wrote to you with the wisdom that God gave him. He writes the same way in all his letters, speaking to them of these matters. His letters contain some things that are hard to understand, which ignorant and unstable people distort, as they do the other scriptures to that, their own destruction. Therefore, dear friends, Since you have been forewarned, be on your guard so that you may not be carried away by the error of lawless and fall from your secure position, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. To him be glory both now and forever. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning, everyone. I do love that uh, Bible reading. The Apostle Paul writes some things that are hard to understand. I don't think Peter was the only one who thought that. Anyway, let's pray as we think about this important question, should we read the Bible literally? Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word. We thank you that it is living and active and sharper than a two-edged sword and it penetrates our hearts and minds. And Father, may it be at work in us today, we pray. And not just this day, but all days, in Jesus' name, amen. Now, whatever you think about the Bible, uh, one thing you can't say about it is this, that it's not a relevant or important book. Um, opinions do divide over the scriptures, uh, the book that we hold so dear to our, to our hearts. And uh, some people might call it old, ponderous, boring, tiresome, guilt-inducing, unreliable, regressive... Uh, no doubt there are those who think that, but 
across all cultures and across all times, uh, this book that is so central for us has always been valued as something that is life-giving, that is wondrous, uh, that is heartwarming, that is life-transforming, it's soul-stirring, it's profound. And you only have to look at the sales and the distribution of the Bible to realise how significant the Bible actually is historically. Uh, let me just give you a couple of facts here about the Bible that you may or may not know. Six billion have been printed historically. Uh, it is the biggest selling, most distributed book in all of history. It may be eight billion, it's hard to quantify at one level. Um, the second thing to note is <clears throat> they're now printing 100 million Bibles every year. Now, some of those are sold, uh, many are given away. I think 20 million are sold in the United States every year. Now, what that equates to is um, 273,972 Bibles every day. In fact, during the course of this sermon, 13, sorry, the course of this service, 13,000 will be distributed. It's quite incredible. Uh, every three seconds, a Bible uh, sorry, every, th every second, three Bibles are being printed and given away or sold in the world at some point in some place. Now, on top of that, uh, the Bible has been translated into 2,500 languages. It's quite incredible. And I don't think you can understand Western culture without having understood and read the Bible because so much of what we hold dear in our culture has flown from what the Bible teaches. And you only have to think about some of the phrases uh, that are just commonplace in our culture. To be a good Samaritan uh, is a commonplace. And there's just all sorts of things. The golden rule, which of course was taught in the Sermon on the Mount by the Lord Jesus. But one of the questions that people do ask is, uh, as they think about this, can you take this book literally? Should you read it that way? It's a very good question to ask. And uh, people who are sceptical or have doubts about the Bible, uh, typically these days raise three different questions in regard to reading the Bible literally. Uh, the first one is this, um, when they reflect on what the Bible teaches and what they think science says, there's often a critique to say that what the Bible says is impossible from a scientific point of view. You can't read it literally because it's scientifically impossible. Uh, the second thing is people often think that when you read the Gospels in particular, the New Testament, uh, apart from just thinking about the questions of the Old Testament, that you can't really hold that it's historically accurate. Um, really, it's an unreliable book historically, isn't it? I mean, uh, the things that are in there seem too far-fetched to actually be true. Is it actually historically reliable? And thirdly, and you see this very much today, and uh, I'm only going to touch on it in a very brief way, it seems to be regressive in terms of our culture. And you only have to look at the manly rugby league pride jersey to start to engage with that debate. And they're the three things I want to look at. Now, there's many other things I could say today. Um, I could talk for a long time on this topic of the Bible. It's such an important and intriguing topic. Um, and so I'm definitely probably going to disappoint people in terms of not answering questions you may have. Uh, please do come and see me afterwards. But I want to work through these three things. Um, is the Bible scientifically impossible? Secondly, historically unreliable? And third, culturally regressive? Is the Bible scientifically impossible? I've got a couple of things I want to say on this question. Um, science is all about studying the physical phenomena of the world in order to better understand how it works. Now, I'm not a scientist, I've got an engineering background, uh, but let me say, I um, only put my toe in the water when it came to the science subjects. It was not my stronghold. And it is worth noting, though, when you think about what the study of science is, the Bible is not a scientific manual. That's worth noting. It's predominantly a historical record of the way God has both made the world and then engaged in the world. It's a story about God. And the story is the story of the gospel. He made us, we've turned away from him, he has come to us and he's redeemed us and one day he will wrap up all history. 
And in this, what is predominantly a historical record of God's dealings with humanity, you've got instruction and prophetic word, etc., and responses to that. But what it isn't is a scientific manual to describe how God made the world. It tells us that God made the world and why God made the world, but not how. And it's important to note that. Because one of the questions that um, people have when they read the Bible and they make the comment, you can't but read the Bible literally, is that we've got to recognise the humanity of Scripture. It is a book that's come from God. He's inspired it and he's inspired the writers of Scripture, but yet they write with the full capacity of human abilities. And so there's all sorts of genres that take up the Bible There is historical narrative, there is prophetic utterance, there is what's called apocalyptic discourse, there's also prose and poetry. And I raise that because one of the key questions that is raised scientifically about the Bible uh, is from the chapters of Genesis that describe the creation. And it's worth saying they're not a scientific report but rather they are written in prose. And you've got two descriptions back to back, Genesis 1 through to 2, 3, and then Genesis 2, 4 through to the end of chapter 3. One is the big picture of creation, the first section, and then it dials in and the microscope comes in and you see the details of how man and woman were made and the story of the fall of humanity. But the language there with talking serpents and trees are really written in a prosaic form. This is not to say that Adam and Eve are not real people, I think they are, but it is to say that you're not dealing with a scientific manual here. Uh, Take one thorny issue that scientists have debated, in particular uh, the Christian church, what do you make of the question scientifically of evolution? Now I might disappoint some people in saying this, Uh, But believing in evolution does not preclude you from believing that the scripture is inspired by God and the gospel and that Jesus is risen from the dead. They're scientific questions. And there are Christians who believe that the gospel uh, is true, that the Bible is inspired by God, that it's inerrant and inspired and hold an orthodox view of scripture, yet at the same time differ on their scientific view in regard to evolution. Let me give you two examples. Um, One is the Reverend Dr. Peter Jensen. Now, put up your hand if you know who Peter is or was. Uh, He's the former Archbishop of Sydney. He also was my principal at Moore College, so I served under him and learnt under him. The man on the right was my boss for 15 years. Uh, Peter has a doctorate in theology. My boss had a doctorate in physics. He was a scientist. Uh, I never forget, Peter... Um, has a very orthodox view of scripture but he loosely holds to evolution he doesn't hold tightly to it he's not a scientist but he said I think that's probably the best way of understanding it Um, and he believes in what he called theistic evolution and Adam and Eve in his picture were real people now my boss Rod um, was very respectful of Peter but he said I just think he's wrong (laughs) And Rod held to an old, long view of creation. His PhD was in geophysics, all about the earth. And so he held in his own mind a position that, yes, the Bible is open on the question of science here. And what science teaches him is that the, Bible, the, the, the world is a very old planet, millions of years. But into that... God placed Adam and Eve very late in the story. Now, if you want to find out more about that view, which is what I hold, come and talk to me afterwards. But Rod is a, was a scientist, now a minister, now retired. Now, they're two very thoughtful and intelligent Christians. They hold different views scientifically. Both saw neither was at odds with Scripture. In other words, the Bible is not going to answer every or many scientific questions. That's why we have science. And what we need to do is learn to read the Bible literally when it allows us to, in terms of its genre, i.e. the historical narrative, 
and read the other parts of scripture guided by that genre. Read poetry as poetry. That's what you see in the Psalms. And so, yes, we can read the Bible literally when it allows us to. But on the question of science, it will teach us stuff that the Bible is silent on. And the Bible will teach us stuff that science is silent on. But the second thing to note about the question of science in the Bible is this. And you may know this. Uh, Modern science was actually developed by Christians. Now, there is a move uh, amongst some scientific atheists to try and distance and put a wedge between the Christian faith and science. But when you go back to the history of science, it's interesting, in most cultures they had scientific research, but the one that actually developed science and gave us what we call the modern scientific empirical method were actually Christians. Science is all about seeking to understand the natural causes for natural phenomena. And what's been discerned through the study of the history of scientific endeavour is that this pursuit did not arise from atheism, but rather because Christian scientists believed that our universe was designed and created by God. And I'll give you a quote from one of the researchers on this. He said, according to a blueprint that can be discerned by rational creatures like ourselves, that blueprint was imprinted in creation by God. Now, from the earliest of days, there have been Christian scientists. Did you know that it was two Franciscan friars from the monastery who laid out the empirical and methodological foundations for what we now know as the empirical method or for scientific research? It's fascinating. They were Roger Bacon and William Ockham. Now, those names may not mean much to you. There's a famous... uh, Philosophical saying by Occam, Occam's razor, if you want to know about it, ask me afterwards. But what they based their work on was the biblical truth that God has made the world with order. And because the world was orderly, you could do experiments that could be repeated. In other words, they observed from Scripture that there is an orderly creation in which scientific research is actually possible. Their faith generated their scientific endeavour. There is a designer who created the physical world that we call planet Earth and the cosmos that we find ourselves in. So in the history of science, some of the greatest names are actually Christians. Uh, Let me put up two on the screen. Uh, Who's heard of Robert Doyle and Michael Faraday? Few people. Now, Robert Doyle has a scientific law named after him. It's Boyle's Law. He was in the 17th century. Michael Faraday, they estimate, is one of the greatest ever in terms of scientists. And there's at least four or five things that are named after him. There is the Faraday constant, the Faraday effect, the Faraday cage, the Faraday waves. He researched uh, particularly in electromagnetism. And all of these things that we now know today came from his research. And what's fascinating is Faraday was an evangelical Christian who was an elder in his Presbyterian church in Scotland, deeply committed to evangelism and intrigued by the relationship of science to Christianity. And it's interesting, um, did you know the preeminent scientific board in the UK uh, is called the National Academy of Sciences, it's the Royal Society. It was founded by Christians. And it's interesting, I was thinking about the Christian scientists I've met in my own day. And this isn't, if I can say, hard data in terms of the percentage of Christians who believe. But it's fascinating. Uh, The church I served at previously, Wollongong, was in a university town. We often think of it as a steel mill town because it had a very strong employment through the steel mill. But the greatest, uh, largest number of people employed in Wollongong is actually the university. And at the time... Uh, that I was there at Fig Tree, we had the Dean of Science, which is the person who is over all the science faculties, um, Robert Norris. We had the Professor of Physics, Peter Fisher. When Peter Fisher retired, the new Professor of Physics was uh, Dr. Roger Lewis, became Professor Roger Lewis. He was also at Fig Tree Anglican. We had the Associate Professor of Robotics, Dr. Philip McCarrow. We had a Senior Lecturer in Physics, Dr. Kerry Freeth, among other academics. 
And my son-in-law is currently a research scientist at Sydney Uni, Dr Isaac Gresham. Now I raise that because um, these people have no qualms. There is no dichotomy between their faith and their scientific endeavour. In fact, science does not make what the Bible teaches impossible to believe. It's actually the opposite. Rather, what the Bible teaches, that there is order and design to the world, actually makes it possible to do and believe science. It's fascinating. Well, let me move to the second thing. Oh, there's the Uni of Wollongong. Is the Bible historically inaccurate? Very important question. A couple of years ago on the ABC show, ABC show The Weekly, Charlie Pickering, he interviewed a professor of theology, Francesca uh, Stravakopoulou. Uh, forgive me if I've said that wrong. Uh, she is a professor in theology and religion at Exeter University in the UK. This is what she said on the program. Jonah was not swallowed by fish. There was never an exodus and there's no evidence for Moses being a historical figure. Striking, you think, why are you studying theology as a professor? Anyway, that's another question. Um, what she's saying is you really can't trust the history of the Bible, it's unreliable. And that's particularly the case when people come to the Gospels. You, you're not really saying Jesus rose from the dead, you can't really believe these miracles happened. Now, I could talk for many hours on this topic, it's one that's held uh, great significance for me. But many people today say you can't trust the narrative sections of the Bible to be historically reliable. The miracle claims seem far-fetched. Hasn't history studies disproved the reliability of the documents? Let me give you a couple of thoughts on this. And if you've got more questions, please do come and see me afterwards. Firstly, there is a small gap between the events of the New Testament and the writing of it. Now, that's a very important thing significantly from a history point of view because often um, things are reported on much later on. But the gap is very small. The generation of the material happened within a few years in terms of some of the very key statements about the Christian faith, particularly 1 Corinthians 15, 1 to 11. Uh, it's almost like a memory statement for the early church about the resurrection of Jesus. The letters are written within a few decades. The Gospels, recording the life of Jesus, were written last, probably because it was culturally against the norm of the day in what was an oral culture, to put oral culture down in writing, the stories of Jesus, but they were written within 60 to 70 years of Jesus' death, which happened around AD 30. And conservative scholars date Matthew, Mark and Luke and the book of Acts to the 19th, so not to the 1960s, to the 60s, <laughs> AD 60, about 30 years after the event. They're written very close. And what is significant about that is the second point. Uh, the New Testament was written by eyewitnesses or friends of eyewitnesses. Now, I'm going to put up a verse which is very well known, but it's worth putting up for those who may be new to reading the Scriptures. And it's the introduction to Luke's Gospel, his version of the story of Jesus. Many have undertaken to drop an account of the things that have been fulfilled amongst us, just as they were handed down to us by those from the first who were eyewitnesses and servants of the Word. Did you read that? Many have undertaken to drop an account, just as they uh, have fulfilled amongst us, just as they were handed down to us by those who were from the first eyewitnesses and servants of the word. With this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things that have been taught. He's saying, I've talked to the people who saw it firsthand. And that's what you've got in the gospel, first-hand accounts. And let me just point out just a couple of them for you, which is my third point. The historical references were to people and events that were known. And so you had eyewitnesses being recorded very early on and they talk of real people and real events that were known in the first century. And one of the ways that... Um, when they wrote history back then, that you would, in a sense, we would call it footnoting, in other words, establish the credibility of the things that you're talking about, is that you would include the people who were there. And I'm going to put up for, for you the first verse, which is from Mark chapter 15, verse 21. And this is a well-known incident in the Gospels, 
Luke just refers uh, to Siren of Cyrene. It's interesting the way Mark records it. A certain man from Cyrene, Simon, the father of Alexander and Rufus. Now, why does he put in these, the name of his kids? It's a fascinating little detail, isn't it? Why, why does he name his kids there? Because Luke doesn't. Mark does. And they forced him to carry the cross. At Jesus' point of great weakness... Mark makes sure that you know exactly who it was that helped him carry the cross to his death. And if you want to check it out, well, go and talk to Simon from Cyrene or talk to his kids, the father of Alexander and Rufus. And no doubt, he would have been very well known because of what he did. Let me give you my favourite one in terms of a historical event that was well known it's from Acts 18 verse 12 now it's often not reflected on much but serious historians for the New Testament period date the entire New Testament and life of Jesus and the early church from this one verse Acts 18 verse 12 who's familiar with it David <laughs> John let me read it. While Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews of Corinth made a united attack on Paul and brought him to the place of judgment. Now you might think, what is so significant about this that you can date the entire New Testament period from this verse? New Testament scholars describe it as the linchpin for dating the New Testament history. The date is so sure, the events are so attested that we have historical certainty here. Luke speaks of a Gallio who was the proconsul of Archaea. Now, we know from Roman history about Archaea. I understand he was the brother or cousin of Seneca. And scholars doubted the existence of this text because they knew of Gallio from other texts, but they did not know that he'd been the proconsul in Archaea. But in 1905, a doctoral student was sifting through some inscriptions collected from Delphi, which is just outside of Corinth. And they found this. And there were nine fragments that formed a message from the Emperor Claudius. And in the text, Claudius writes, Gallio, my friend and proconsul. <laughs> the inscription was etched into a stone that was literally attached to the temple of Apollo. And the text is dated between April to July of AD 52, which means Gallio probably occupied the chair of proconsul from the 1st of July AD 51 to the 1st of July AD 52, because proconsuls took office on the 1st of July and their tenure was generally limited to one year. And we know because of the seasons of when Luke record Paul's travels, the exact point in history when Paul was in Corinth. And it's from this text. Now, that's just one example of the historical reliability of the Scriptures. Far from being unreliable, they are written early by eyewitnesses who speak of real events and real people. You can trust this book that we call the Scriptures. It's not scientifically impossible, it actually makes science possible and it's historically reliable. But the last thing I want to reflect on is the question of today's culture. And it's really the question we're being hammered with, is the Bible culturally regressive? And it's one of the most regrettable things I've seen um, culturally, um, what has taken place with the pride jersey and even this morning there is another article about that I um with the seven saying look you've heard rumors that we would wear the jersey next year and they said no that's not the case uh, the stance we've taken this year is the stance we'll take next year if we're forced into that and when people critique the bible 30 years ago there was a certain respect for it yes scientifically it might not be possible yes there might be historical questions but 
it wasn't viewed culturally to be a negative book in the way that it's becoming today. And there has been a great shock about what's taken place with this. And it's for this reason that we're actually going to address these with separate talks over the next two weeks. And Nathan um, put his hand up to address... I've spoken uh, a number of times on the issue of homosexuality and Nathan is going to come and just help us to think through that issue next week. It's a very important issue to think through. Um, there's a midweek one that I'm doing um, following on Tuesday, Wednesday week uh, and Thursday morning on the very difficult topic of transgenderism and what are we to think of that and so I do encourage you to come along we're running it for a number of sessions so that people in these small groups can come and so I'm not going to say anything more on that today only that's very important that we think about it it is very complex and we need to think what is our response uh, in this world well let me give you another example of where people have thought the bible is culturally regressive and it's that of slavery uh, people will read texts I'll give you one example Ephesians 6 verse 5 where it says, slaves obey your masters. And people have kind of recalled at that and you go, seriously? Are you saying the Bible's okay with slavery? Well, let me say a couple of things on that. Um, the average reader today immediately and understandably thinks of the African slave trade of the 18th and 19th centuries when they hear texts like Ephesians 6.5 that says, slave obey your masters. And I think we naturally conjure up images of human trafficking and the sexual slavery practice in, in the world today and think, is that what the Bible is endorsing? It can't be. That's just so regressive. Well, I'll give you a few thoughts. Uh, the first thing is this, the slavery of the first century was nothing like what we typically imagine it to be. Uh, you've got to remove those images of slave traders. That is not what was taking place in the first century Roman Empire when the New Testament was written. Uh, there was actually not a great difference between slaves and the average free person. Slaves were not distinguishable from others by race, speech or clothing. They looked and lived like almost everyone else. They were not segregated from the rest of society. From a financial point of view, slaves made the same wages as free labourers. Therefore, they were not unusually poor. Also, slaves could accrue enough personal capital to actually buy themselves out. Most could reasonably hope to be manumitted within 10 to 15 years or by their late 30s at the latest. Though there were cases of poor and abusive treatment, they were typically not the general case with slavery. Uh, there was no sense of unrest amongst slaves in the first century. That's the interesting thing. Now, the second thing to note is this. Um, when you read the New Testament carefully, Paul says to slaves, seek freedom if you can. That's 1 Corinthians 7 verses 21 to 24 and the third thing to note is and I'll put this up on the screen what we think of slavery the Bible actually condemns and so I'll give you one example this is from 1 Timothy 9 verse 11 there's also another example in the Old Testament in Deuteronomy 24 Paul says this we know that the law is made for those who are righteous not for the righteous, but those who are lawbreakers and rebels, the ungodly and sinful, among whom are, and he lists a number of different categories, but also includes slave traders. And so the New Testament is against what we would think of as the modern slave trade. That's very clear. But let me just stop and just get us to think deeper about the Bible and culture and whether we're aggressive. One of the reasons I think people say that is they, they look at today's culture and think we are so enlightened in the world we live in. And there'll always be a different issue that we have a difference from biblically understanding the world to what our culture understands the world. And the question I want to ask people is, why do we think that this culture is nirvana, that somehow we've arrived in this perfect cultural moment? And that we've got all the answers on how to live now. Because my experience and my perception of our culture is it doesn't. And I'll just give you one example. You only have to look at the correlation between the way we are moving away from the Christian faith and the rise in mental health issues. To conclude, our culture does not have all the answers. And the second thing I'd say is, if this book is from God, you would have to think 
that it is going to challenge every culture in different ways. Because if you want a book that you claim is from God and also agrees with everything that you think, what you've got is a book from God, a God who's made in your image. Not you made in his image. Do you hear what I'm saying? If we want a book that we just agree with, you actually haven't got a book from God who is over us and has created us and is never going to challenge us about what life's about. And that's what this book does. It reveals who God is, his plans for the world, his salvation of the world, and how he wants us to now live. And it will butt up against our culture at all sorts of points. And it will butt up against different cultures in different ways. It will critique our Western culture in one way. It will critique the Middle Eastern culture in another way. And there will be things in the Middle Eastern culture which sit well with the Bible in a way that they don't sit well here in the Western culture. And there's things in the Western culture that sit well with the Bible that don't sit well with Middle Eastern culture. Just to use two examples. But to every culture, it will challenge it. And we're living at a particular moment in history where it's absolutely doing that, which is why we need to look at this series. And so on that note, let us reaffirm our faith that God has spoken in the scriptures, that this is his word, and we need to read it thoughtfully and reverently, and we need to obey it because it is God's word to us. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word and we thank you that it's a living word and may it continue to speak to us and correct us and change us and transform us and help us to know the good news of the gospel through our Lord Jesus Christ, we pray in his name. Amen. Thank you so much, Bruce. A really important subject for us to be looking at, the nature of the Bible and the degree to which we can be confident in, in what it says. Um, what we're going to do now uh, is take an opportunity, I'm going to give you an opportunity to share a favourite part of the Bible and uh, possibly why it's a favourite part or verse for you. I'm going to share one just to get you going. Uh, this might prompt you. Um, but one, uh, I have a lot of favourite verses, uh, but one I'm going to read for you is this one from 1 Peter. Uh, I love the Apostle Peter. I love the way he was a boots and all kind of guy. Um, the way that he, he cottoned on to who Jesus was and was so crestfallen uh, when he, he died. Uh, wrote this some years later. He said in 1 Peter chapter 1 verse 3, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. I love that for so many reasons. Uh, but one of them is it's a statement that is earthed in history and it's written by someone who saw the risen Jesus. Uh, it's a wondrous thing to know, isn't it, that, that God placed people like Peter and John and others to be there at the time who could tell us what happened when the Lord Jesus came amongst us. So in terms of the historical reliability of the Bible, it's so helpful. But more than that, because of its significance, the resurrection of Jesus means that we have a living hope. <laughs> I've just done six funerals in the last three weeks. And a part of me has been glad to have the opportunity to speak and to show people who may not otherwise know this that there is reason for hope. I, I love this verse for so many reasons. Now, I'm not expecting you to give a, a mini-sermon uh, if you share a verse, but is there someone else? Scott's, got a, um, Scott's up the back there. He's got another microphone. I've got one here at the front. Is there someone else who'd like to share a favourite verse from the Bible? I'm going to come down to the floor.
Ah, John. I really like John chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Thank you so much. Uh, Scott's got one over there. Another John. Um, I can't quote the verse, but there's just two words, and it's uh, Jesus outside Lazarus's tomb. Mm. And uh, it pops into my head at times when I think of the trials and tribulations of this world, but it's just that Jesus wept, and we have this image of Christ that is sometimes uh, emotionless, but his, his compassion, his weeping for people, the, for the suffering that... Uh, Lazarus's family, his sisters were feeling. And I think as we explore these difficult subjects, I think it's Christ's compassion, his love for people that needs to stand in our minds, that Jesus actually weeps for the suffering and struggles that people are going through, including us, but, but as we, we grapple with these difficult subjects in the next few weeks, that's the heart of God for humanity. Thanks, John. So he loves us and he understands us. I think I'm going to be first to Rhonda. <laughs> I have two favourite verses, and it usually depends on what part of the Bible I'm reading at the time. Um, but well, this one is from 1 John chapter 4, and it says, This is how we know what love is. That God laid down his only son, brought his only son into the world, that we might live through him. This is love, not that we loved him, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. That, that this is how we can know what love is, that God sent his only son into the world. And the other one is, my, is from Psalm 121, which says, I lift my eyes to the hills, from where does my help come from? It comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. Then the very last verse in Psalm 121 says, he knows my coming and my going. So he's before me and he's, he's ahead of me. He's, in, he's with me in every step of the way. Emma Sini. I've been reflecting on this scripture from Proverbs chapter 27, verse 19. As water reflects the face, so one's life reflects the heart. And that, and with what Rhonda just shared about Psalm 121, that in my daily life, that the Lord may be ever-present so that as I go through the day, meeting this person and that person, that my heart will be reflected with the grace of God. Thank you so much, Emma Sini. Uh, David, uh, we might have just one more after this. A favourite verse is um, Isaiah 41 verse 10, where God gives words of comfort to his people. And I'll just read that to you. So do not uh, fear, for I am with you. Do not be dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you and help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. And I feel that often, you know, when we feel discouraged, that we can turn to the Lord and know his grace and his strength and his ability to see us through difficult times. And Jane. John chapter 3, verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Thank you so much, Jane. And thanks to others. I'm sorry for others who may have wanted to say something. Uh, save it up for morning tea, and uh, it'd be good to share our favourite verses over morning tea. What we're going to do now is we're going to stand and sing thanks to God whose word was spoken. Please uh, join us. Try to. 
standing i'll lead us in prayer as we get ready for the rest of the week serving the lord as well as morning tea which will be served in the function room now grant we beseech you almighty god that the words we have heard this day with our outward ears may through your grace be so grafted inwardly in our hearts that they may bring forth in us the fruit of good living to the honor and praise of your name through jesus christ our lord amen <laughs> 